Welcome to Partner Path, a podcast that unpacks the venture capital and growth equity ecosystem from a junior perspective. Young entrepreneurs and investors have already had a massive impact on the industry, having started unicorns and launched billion-dollar funds. We discuss these success stories and more by sharing perspectives and advice from some of the industry's most prominent role models. This podcast expresses our views as of the date published and does not represent the views of and is not endorsed by any company for which we work. Today, we would like to welcome Romy Boyd, based in San Francisco, on Sequoia's growth team. Welcome, Romy. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. To kick us off, you played four years of college soccer at the University of Pennsylvania. I'd love to learn more about what lessons you learned from being a college soccer player that you applied to your role in BC today. One of the biggest things that I think I bring to my role at Sequoia is a growth mindset. I think in sports, you're always learning that you can be better, right? Even Michael Jordan had things that he had to work on every day. And I think the skills that you learn is that sports teaches you that if you put in the effort, the outcome always comes and and you can get better at anything, both your weaknesses and your strengths. And so I think tied to this is also the ability to, to give and receive feedback. I think every play that you know, whether you did your best, whether you did it right, you did it wrong, you hit the pass if you pick the right option. And so that constant internal monologue and bar that you hold yourself to is something that I try to bring to the working world, whether it's a memo that I've written or an email that I've sent, what could I have done better? Did it hit the bar of what I expect from myself? And then how do I ask for team like feedback from my teammates and how do I give it in a way that they're going to listen? And so I think in receiving feedback, you realize that you can go ask for it and look for patterns in it. If one person says it, you can choose to accept it or not. But if multiple people say it, it's probably something you need to work on. And then in giving it as a teammate, I feel like I always learned how to talk to my teammates about what they could be better on. And it was so meaningful when a teammate told me what I could be better on. And so giving it in a way that people are open to hearing it is half the battle. So I think growth mindset and feedback is probably one big category. And then the second is discipline. At Sequoia, we talk about trust in three components. One being competence. Are you actually able to execute on what someone's asking you to do? Two is intent. Are you actually trying to do it in the right way and for the right reasons? And then the third is consistency. And the consistency is the hard part. You don't trust someone if you don't know that they're going to do it every time you ask. And I think sports requires you to bring the discipline every day to show up so that your teammates trust you. And so I think it's the discipline is the other component that playing sports every day in college brought to the working world. Yeah, I completely agree. And I even draw parallels from sourcing as well, reaching out to college coaches, trying to get recruited, reaching out to founders, trying to get them on the phone. A lot of similarities. Exactly. And I don't know, Laura, maybe you have feedback for me as a teammate for those that don't know Laura and I played soccer together in college. We'll save that for after. (laughs) (laughs) So Romy, after working in the private equity group at Bain Capital in Boston for three or so years, you moved across the country to join Sequoia. It would be great if you could touch on how you heard about the position at Sequoia and any highlights from the interview process. Absolutely. And maybe if it's helpful, I'll just back up and share a little bit of my journey into finance more broadly. When I was in college, I did a program called Girls Who Invest that was all about getting more women into investing. And that opened my eyes to this whole world. And so I'm hugely grateful to Girls Who Invest and and the life that it opened up for me. Out of college, like every college student, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I think I was knew I was interested in business and economics. I was a behavioral econ and stats major in college. And was trying to look for the middle ground of how can I get close to companies and start thinking about what makes good businesses. And so that's what drew me to Bain Capital. And that was honestly the best place I could have possibly started. I think it was a wonderful place to learn about investing. And the people there are just extremely smart, hardworking, kind, humble, everything that you could want for a first set of mentors. And so I'm so, so grateful for them. I realized 
after about three years there that the day-to-day work in late-stage private equity was not that exciting to me. A lot of the work is around the deep accounting and technical diligence that comes with putting leverage on a business. In diving into the vast amounts of data that these late-stage businesses have, it often felt like I was missing the forest for the trees of that diligence and wanted to go someplace where I could step back and ask the questions that mattered most to me. You know, is this a good market? Is this a business that should own that market? And I think most importantly, how should the future look different from the past? And so I, I knew that late-stage private equity wasn't where I was wanted to build the rest of my career, but I wasn't sure where I wanted to go from there. And I got lucky. I actually... <laughs> a cold email from uh, the head of the growth team at Sequoia, who I think this is probably a classic Sequoia story of hustle. Like in his free time, he was going on LinkedIn, looking at people to see who he might want to hire and just was sending cold emails in his free time. And so I think that that speaks to the effort that every single member of Team Sequoia puts in on a day-to-day basis. Is that your boss to clarify? Yeah, Pat Pat Grady, who leads our growth team. He works with amazing companies like Snowflake and Okta and ServiceNow. Um, so it was a cold email that kind of started my journey. And he basically said, I literally thought it was a phishing email because it was one line. It was basically, hey, would you ever want to talk about Sequoia with a weird link? And I thought I, I thought I was being scammed. And I just knew like from that conversation, I was like, Pat is someone that I want to work with and learn from. Like, I don't know much about Sequoia yet, but I definitely know about Pat. And from Pat, I started talking with other people on the team. And each one, I just had that same experience of like feeling challenged and learning so much from them and feeling that they were to their core, like people with their hearts in the right place, but also like deeply intelligent, competitive and ready to go be the best that they could be. So it was kind of through that series of conversations that I got really excited about Sequoia. And then I kind of realized I I was interviewing for a job. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure it was challenging going right into private equity because a lot of kids, you do the typical two years of banking or two years of consulting and then hop over to the buy side. And so I guess what was the most challenging part about switching from private equity to venture capital and joining Sequoia? It's interesting because in private equity, and this might work differently in other places, but at Bain Capital, it's really a staffing model. And so you get told you will work on X company with X work stream. So in some senses, the job is easy because it's one of execution. You just kind of go and and put your head down and work on whatever you're told to work on and try to do it to the best of your ability. What was the biggest challenge was in venture, that model is totally different. At Sequoia, you show up and there's no staffing. It's work on finding great founders that we want to work with and amazing investment opportunities for our LPs, period. And so you're kind of like, what do I do? What's nice is that you basically volunteer to help other partners in areas that you're and then explore your curiosity in any area that you might be interested in. I think the hardest part was the transition from, you know, one of execution to one of being your own engine, where every day you get to decide what is the best possible use of my time and where do I want to be spending it? Do I want to be sourcing? Do I want to be talking to this person? Do I want to be diligencing this company and doing reference calls? And so you get to choose your own adventure and it's way more empowering that way, but it's also a little bit more stressful because at the end of the day, you're you're responsible for your own success or failure. Yeah. That's why you have to love working in this role because it is so yeah. autonomous that your day, you can craft it how you like, whether it's sourcing or diligence. So Definitely have to love being a part of the VC ecosystem. I guess on that, speaking about the team and and the people you were able to interview with, would love to hear more about how you interact with the team. Walk us through the makeup of deal teams, how responsibilities are typically dispersed, and walk us through what Sequoia looks for in founders and how the team works together to land a potential investment. Maybe I'll start with what we look for in founders. 
which is honestly that we look for outliers. And what does that mean? We talk a lot about people who have traveled distance, who've experienced things that nobody else has experienced. And so they're able to bring a new mindset and a novel insight into the, the market that they're looking at. And we look for people who have grit and resilience. Founding companies is extremely hard and they're going to face so many challenges along the way. And so we hope to be their partners in that. But so we're looking for people who are kind of, we talk about the underdogs, <laughs> indefatigable, which I can't even pronounce that word. People who are basically willing to, to risk it all for something that they really believe in. In terms of the makeup of the team, on any given investment, we work in a team of two because we think that you'll be able to challenge and, and partner with each other better when you have someone to bounce ideas off of. But the whole team Sequoia comes into play for, for most investments. I'll give an example. I won't say the name of the company, but we recently invested in a company in the AI space where to start, Sonia and Pat have been beating the drum of the importance of AI for more than a year. And in August, Sonia published a landscape um, talking about the changes that we thought were coming down the pike. When momentum started to pick up, I think everyone on Team Sequoia was ready for what that meant. Nikki, who's a member of our talent team, was out meeting with people who she thought were great builders in the AI space. And she identified a wonderful founder who she thought was really special. So she introduced him to our early stage team who started to build the relationship. And then as time passed, our early stage team met a bunch of companies in the area and handed this one off to the growth team and said, hey, we think this is, this is the one to track. And so when our team eventually made the investment, it really was all of Team Sequoia being ready and working together on it. And then even in the investment decision process, there were two of us working on the investment to write the memo. But in the discussion, there were moments where we were kind of wondering, is this the one? Are we too early? Are we right? The best thing about a partnership is that there are people to encourage you and to slow you down depending on what you need. And so our partner said, hey, write the memo, bring it in front of us. Let's like really discuss it. And so I think we got the, the encouraging nudge from our partners when we need it. We got the hard questions in the partner meeting when we needed it. And so that kind of Every person bringing different strengths, different pattern recognition and encouragement and hard questions, like demanding and supportive is what makes it really special. It's great to hear. I think team collaboration is such an important attribute to creating a powerful platform, which Sequoia certainly is as they've st stood the test of time. Moving on to, to the culture and, and kind of what you see in the group there, we've heard that Sequoia loves the makeup of athletes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why that is. And what sticks out to you about the culture at Sequoia? What stuck out to me from the beginning was just how unified the culture at Sequoia was. Like each person has internalized the message of what it means to be a part of Sequoia. And everything's mission driven. The, the mission of Sequoia is to help daring founders build legendary companies from idea to IPO and beyond. And so what that means to us is first and foremost, it's the founder. We put the founder first and they're, they're central to everything that we do. Second is the LPs, and it's we get to work on behalf of incredible causes. Our conference rooms are literally named after our, all our LPs, so our meetings might be an MIT or Ford Foundation. And then third is Team Sequoia of what's best for Sequoia, and then at the bottom of the totem pole is always the individual. And so I think that like stack is kind of integral to each person and how they think about you know what's the right thing to do, what's right for our founders, what's right for LPs, and what's right for Team Sequoia. But I think what I love the most is that Sequoia loves thinking about the word and, and and where that tension should come from. And from a sports perspective, it's about being a team and a great individual. Like when is the moment when you should pass the ball? And when is the moment when you're the one that should take the game winning shot and have the courage and confidence to say, I'm great and can take it? Or to know, hey, my teammates better positioned. How do I set them up? 
people use the phrase from the Navy SEALs, like individually exceptional and collectively unstoppable a lot because that's always our goal. But also we use and when we talk about demanding and supportive, which is a phrase my partner Revy uses all the time um, because he thinks that you can encourage people to be the best they can be by asking more of them and saying, I believe you can do it. And then similarly, we talk a lot about being aggressive and humble, which is kind of a weird dichotomy, but it's saying if we're going to go for something, go all in, but have the humility to say when we might be wrong, when we know what we don't know. And so I think all of those moments of tension of individual and team and pushing someone to be better and supporting them is, yeah, central to who Sequoia is. I love that I think some of those values are are just in the name itself. Sequoia Tree is such a, a long lasting organism. And Sequoia was obviously founded at a time when a lot of firms were named after the last names of the leading partners. Um, so the idea that they had this commitment to the longer journey, and I love the the LP named meeting rooms as well. Well, it's so funny. That's literally, that's why Don Valentine named it Sequoia. And I think it's something that none of us take for granted. And every founder that we work with gets the benefit of the platform that we've been a part of. And I think each each of us feel like we're stewards that are trying to leave it better for the next generation in the same way. And so I'm, I'm definitely hugely grateful to get to be a part of it. You've mentioned that you've kind of been deploying or looking to deploy capital in the AI space and specifically generative AI. Would love for you to touch on kind of what you view as the near-term societal impact of, of these advancements recently in AI. It's really incredible the moment in time that we're living in. Like I think that how people interact and live their daily lives is going to look very different from five years from now than what we did today. And one of the key pillars that I think about is actually meaningful work. And so what do I mean by that? Copilot has released some data on this, but basically Copilot, GitHub Copilot, for those that don't know, is an AI-enabled almost assistant that can help suggest what the next code line you should write is. And and ChatGPT can do similar things of helping you to write code faster. And It's really good at helping to eliminate the boilerplate code that people need to write and take away the manual and menial and give people back time to think about the hard parts of the code. How do they want to structure it? What are the most challenging problems to solve? And so it feels like AI broadly is going to take away a lot of the the manual and the mundane for a bunch of different industries and give people back time to think about the hard questions and the problems that they really want to solve. Um, In my own life, I feel like it's going to happen on taking away the boring emails or um, helping me to summarize and communicate information with my teams that we're all that much more efficient. I think the second big pillar that it's going to have impact that I've found already is actually unlocking creativity. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but I feel like I don't think of myself as artistic or creative in any way. And all of these AI tools are allowing me to unlock new mediums and see myself as as creative in a way that I've never before. And so hopefully it unlocks this like new long tail of creatives that, um, otherwise wouldn't have felt like they had access. That's great. And and I know that I think Sonia and Pat put out a great piece. Was it the Creative New World? They did a great job breaking down the various areas um, by the actual language or, or text, right? So there's text, code, image, speech, video. There are a lot of different kind of vertical, if you, you specify it by content, areas that, that generative AI is, is impacting today. I know you mentioned the coding use case, but I'm trying to think more of like the second order implications that people might might not be thinking about. How could it impact people's day-to-day lives in the next couple of weeks even? Sam Altman, who heads up OpenAI, has said things along those lines. But basically, these are, are going to be reasoning engines. Right now, people are often using them as databases where you can go search for information more efficiently and have it consolidated for you. But actually, big unlocks are going to come when they can help you reason and think through really challenging problems. I think in the near term, 
how I'm already using it is just from a learning and understanding basis. Part of the job of investing is learning about new areas quickly and as deeply as possible. And so I'm able to start searching and using kind of the database piece of it to learn and understand. I think in terms of industries that may be unexpected, like one place that I would love to get help is AI tax accounting, right? Like <laughs> do your taxes faster and more accurately or on the legal front, there's some really interesting companies building that are going to help lawyers be more efficient and once again, give them their time back to focus on the actual legal case at hand versus the data gathering mission. So there's, those are two examples of industries that I think should see, see some AI revolution. And as you may know, Laura and I have covered um, the, the VC stack and kind of software facing VC PE investors, given the target audience here. would love to hear your thoughts on, on how it could potentially impact the VC stack or software that, that as investors we interact with on a daily basis? I think on the market intelligence and research front, there's some really interesting stuff that's going to happen around how do you get up to speed on industries quickly and how do you find patterns in what people, various data points, whether it's what people are saying, company financials, et cetera. So it feels like that's one space. On the search front, we work with a company called Glean that helps you look across internal documents and understand what people know. And so I think I'm really excited with everything that Glean's building to help you sort through and find the information that you need. Because I think the single most frustrating thing is when you know, oh, I like someone told me this and I can't remember exactly what they said and being able to find it faster is going to be hugely important. And then broadly on the sourcing front, I don't know about you guys, but I write a lot of emails every day and receive a lot of emails. And so being able to be more efficient on that stack on the inbound and outbound should be really helpful. As while we're on the AI topic, I'd love to double click into healthcare. So AI in healthcare is creating a lot of buzz around diagnostics, advancing treatments, streamlining tasks, and patient engagement. And, you know, I read that AI in the healthcare market is going to grow from $14.6 billion in 2023 to $102.7 billion by 2028. So I guess what direction do you see it impacting the healthcare ecosystem or is there an area that you're focused on? There are a couple buckets. So one area that I've been spending time is actually on the clinical and drug development side. These large language models are changing the way we can understand proteins and chemistry, which is actually uh, not what people think about a lot. But essentially, protein language models are coming out. And so these models are allowing people to better identify targets for new compounds, pick compounds that are more effective, and hopefully will speed up the timeline to to new drugs and lower the cost as more effective drugs make it into clinical trials. So there's a whole bunch of companies that are out here building the software to take full advantage of this. But I actually think that one place in pharma is, is super exciting. Then within the kind of healthcare industry more broadly, one space is actually in, in billing and medical coding, where it's really manual. There are a lot of errors today. So Athelis is a company in our portfolio that started with remote patient monitoring, and it's now offering kind of RCM and some transcription AI features. But that's another category that I think should see, see a significant change. And then lastly is on the software itself for hospitals, doctors, and nurses. A meaningful amount of doctor and nurse time is spent on patient intake, recording notes and post-op and things like that. And so automated AI to help people navigate the health system more effectively, and then for doctors and nurses to transcribe their own notes um, and then search for information to better better provide healthcare, I hope will help make healthcare more affordable and effective. That's interesting you say that because kind of around the written note-taking side, I was reading today that prior authorization 
is taking you know, doctor's hours. And so now there's companies coming out trying to streamline that process and automate some of the work. It's just manual tasks that doctors have to go through. And as you and I being knee injury prone, we can relate to how long it takes to get some of these authorizations through. Exactly. You got it. Romeo, we took one or two statistics classes together uh, during our time at Penn, but I know you also touched on behavioral economics during your time there. So with that in mind, we'd love to hear about an area or a theme within data analytics or business intelligence that you've kind of been excited about. It's funny because I spend probably less of my day-to-day time here, but it feels like the lines are blurring between data scientist, machine learning engineer, business analyst, and at the end of the day, what's the purpose of data? Data is there to help us make better decisions, right? And so companies are trying to help the general public, whether it's a, an individual salesperson who's saying, how do I get better to a ML engineer who's trying to write better code in Python, get more insights out of data faster. And so a company that we've partnered with Hex is trying to build a better data notebook. And so I'm really excited for everything that Hex is going to do because they've basically done a, done a great job of rethinking, you know, what should the Python or Jupyter notebook be? And, and they're starting with the kind of traditional data scientist, but hopefully they're building it so that eventually it can be a appeal to the broader kind of business user who's just trying to use data to answer questions as fast as possible. A lot of different firms have different approaches to sourcing, whether it's inbound, partner-led, outbound, kind of the metric spray and pray approach. And it sounds like you're very thesis-driven, thoughtful about the spaces, the areas you go after, after just touching on healthcare, AI. So how do you approach thesis building and validating those theses? Maybe just to touch also broadly on sourcing, we're definitely hugely thesis driven, but we also love when founders send us emails. And so don't you don't need to wait for us to reach out to you is the only pitch that I would have. I think my mom always says, if you don't ask, you don't receive. And so if people are working on interesting things, we always welcome inbound as well. But on the thematic side, honestly, I start with an area where I, I hear a common refrain of a pain point or problem. I think the best part about this job is you get to talk to people across a wide range of industries and you get to hear what are common issues that they're running into? And so when you see see the point of pain, you start looking around for who, who might be the solution. So kind of starting from the customer first is what I like to think of rather than like a cool technology that goes outward. And then within that, I think the step one is just talk to as many people as possible and try to meet every company that's doing it in the space. Because I think the cardinal mistake that people make is that they assume that the company that they started with is the right one and they build a thesis around one company rather than around the space, the pain point, and try to find who's building the best solution and honestly follow the voice of the customer. I'm at the growth stage where people have revenue, people are selling, and so you're able to basically start talking to customers to understand why they like which solution better. And so I try to follow the voice of the customer rather than put my own assumptions on top of the market. And so then, and then lastly, it's kind of, I think about overall market tailwinds, who's building the best approach, and then who's got the best team. Because again, I think it comes down to the founder at the end of the day. It's many people are really talented, but it's the person who listens the best, has the humility to ask the right questions, and then has the missionary approach to inspire a team. Nothing is built by a sole person. And so someone who can gather the best talent to themselves is, is likely to be really successful. So those are the three pieces that I think about when I'm, when I'm trying to drive toward a thematic investment. That's a great point. I think it's extremely difficult to attract really 
high caliber of talent. And it does certainly say something about the founder and the mission when you are able to. How long do you think it takes to really, you know, pull those levers of vulnerability with a founder, kind of get to some of those answers to the outstanding questions on evaluating them? Are they a good person? Yeah, it's a really hard question. A long time. So this is part of why we love to be so thematic driven and have a prepared mind and in any space that we go into, because if you're working in a tight fundraising timeline, how do you get to know someone as a human being over two weeks? It's really hard. And so we like to have the chance to see people at different points in time over the course of their building journey, because then you can judge them on slope rather than intercept. And so you knew them where they started, but where are they today? And I think like slope is the single biggest predictor of, of where people are going. And then how do you get to know them? I think it's really important to get to meet them in person. I think we get warned a lot by some of the senior people, Doug and Ruloff, about a Zoom world and getting trapped behind the screen, but you don't know how people come across in person. So it's getting off my butt and going to go meet people, flying if I need to. Because I think in person, you start to be able to let the guard down and have the real conversations about what matters to you most as a person, what drives you and motivates you. And when you face stumbling blocks and adversity, because no path is a smooth trajectory, um, how have you faced it in the past and how are you going to face it in the future? And to end every episode, we like to wrap up with two questions. So the first is what motivates you to work hard? Honestly, it's always been proving to myself that I can do more than I think I can. I think some of it comes from honestly a place of self-doubt of like not quite believing it and I just want to prove it. And then some of it comes from trying to disprove others if they've ever told me I can't. But mostly it's a lot of curiosity about I just want to see what's around that next corner. And so I want to run as fast as I can to get there. And the second question is, what is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? And funny enough, I actually have a note saved in my phone from four years ago where Romy wrote out a piece of advice to give to the younger soccer girls. So I'm curious if the advice is oh the same gosh. or kind of how it's shifted. My advice is that to my younger self is that you don't have to have all the answers, but you do have to have all the questions. And so don't be afraid to ask because it's the only way you'll learn and try to let the pride go because that doesn't get you anywhere. That's a great note to end on. Romy, thank you so much for, for joining us. I think this is a really fun, interesting conversation and it's great to be able to, to get the insight from, from someone at Sequoia. So thank you for coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. 